Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with, uh, with me to Luke chapter 2 where we were before? What a privilege it, it was to um, join Richard and Berkeley in dedicating a little creed to the Lord. As Baptists, we do this because while we may not find a command or an example in God's word to baptize infants, we do. We have an example here of uh, Jesus' parents um, being dedicated to the Lord. Uh, in Luke 2, 21 to 24, it says that Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple. Verse 22 says to present him to the Lord. And um, this morning, I want to focus on what happened just after that. According to verse 25, uh, a man named Simeon, who is described as godly and righteous and devout, um, who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel and who had the Holy Ghost on him, uh, he gave a blessing to this family. Uh, this phrase from verse 25, uh, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost being on him. Uh, it means that his whole life long, Simeon had been waiting for, and he had been looking for God's promised Messiah to come. And in fact, verse 26 informs us that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen God's promised Messiah. And we find out in verses 27 to 33, I love this part, you see this all over Christmas, God's sovereignty. Uh, he had a census take place across the whole world just to get uh, Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He had the stars. God was sovereign over the stars and leading the wise men to come and worship the Lord. And here in verses 27 to 33, God has Simeon come into the temple at just the exact time that Joseph and Mary are there to dedicate, to present Jesus to the Lord. Simeon takes the infant Savior uh, into his arms to uh, praise God with this prayer. Uh, as he holds him, as he sees God's promise come to fulfillment, he says, God's salvation, Jesus Christ, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. This morning, I want to focus in on verses 34 and 35 because Simeon prays a blessing on Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Let's read verses 34 and 35 once more. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. And here at Christmas, in this Christmas account, we have just that. Uh, we are told here through the prophecy you gave Simeon what lay ahead for the Christ child. And as we celebrate Christmas, even this morning, but on into the week ahead, I pray we would never forget, but a constant reminder may be in our hearts of why he came and was to save lost sinners like us. We're so thankful for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the very first thing that Simeon tells 
uh, Joseph, Mary, and, and the baby Jesus about what's ahead for the Christ child is a, a separation. It says in verse 34, behold, look, pay attention. That's what behold means. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. There'd be a separation. That's what was ahead for the Christ child in his life. Uh, there would be a division, but it's a division that unifies. That may seem like a confusing, even contradicting phrase. That's exactly what was ahead for Jesus in his life. And it's honestly the intent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand we live in a world that values a supposed unity and peace, but that's incapable of ever achieving it? or experiencing it because it's attempted without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simeon prophesied that what's ahead for this little baby, God's promised Messiah, was division. This child shall be set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And we know that's true. Everybody that Jesus interacted with, anyone who is made aware of Jesus, even to this morning, they have to make a choice. They have to make a decision. They have to come to a conclusion and then respond to or act on that conclusion about who he is and what he came to earth for. Was he just a prophet like so many that have come uh, to earth and taught? Was he just a good man, one of many teachers who taught us how we are to live? No, in the New Testament, the claim of Christ is much greater, much stronger than, than that. He was God himself in human form, sent to live among us, to die for us, to rise from that grave for us, and one day to return for us. It's a division. His life would be one of division, of separation. In all actuality, we are born, every single one of us, we enter this world divided or separated. We're separated from God because of our sin. That's the worst possible division and the only one that really matters there's only one way that that division, that separation is reconciled. There's only one way we can be reunited with God and with each other. And that's through faith in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. It's a division. That's why Christ came. That's what is ahead for Christ in his future. Now, you might be thinking, Jason, what about that angelic message back in verse 14 when they announced to the shepherds uh, Jesus' birth? And what was their song? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Well, no doubt, that is exactly what Christ brings to us and what he offers. Peace with God. Uh, but he does it through the gospel. He takes people, every single one of us, who are separated from God because of our sin. And through the gospel, he separates us from sin's penalty and his power in our lives. And he reconciles us to relationship with God. It's a division that unifies. As Jesus approached his death on the cross, he tells his disciples and the multitudes who were listening to him in Luke chapter 12, and I'll read it for you, but Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, the words of Christ are, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth? No, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It's a division that would come from Christ, but it's a division that 
unifies. That's what was ahead for the Christ child, his being set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, his separating us from our sin that separated us from God is a division that unifies, but it's also a division that sanctifies by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been, uh, as God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.13, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, and we have been brought into the kingdom of his dear son, separated from Satan's dominion once we are saved, placed in Christ's eternal kingdom. The division that happens when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we are born again, as um, Grace sang about this morning, a division that happens is a separation. It is a sanctification from sin and from this world, and a sanctification of being set apart to God. In Acts 26, 18, we find Paul. He's testifying of the gospel before King Agrippa. And Paul explains to the king his commission from God as a missionary. He says, I'm sent to open the eyes and turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You understand that this being set apart from the division that our sin created uh, to a new and genuine unity that's found only in Christ to a unity with God and a unity with each other who have been saved. That's the peace on earth, goodwill toward men that the angel choir was singing about that was promised and prophesied at Christ's birth and that's available to every one of us. No other unity is possible outside of salvation by God's grace through Jesus Christ. There's a second thing that Simon Simeon um, tells Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus. It says at the end of verse 34 that his future, it would include a sign which shall be spoken against. I don't think there's any doubt that this sign is talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about what is communicated in the cross of Christ. That's what signs do, right? Whether they tell us a business is open or closed or how fast we're supposed to be going or how much gas currently costs, signs communicate. And we've learned in our study in Hebrews on Sunday mornings that Jesus was and, and is God's communication to us, the final superior message, the final superior messenger. I believe the sign that God is referring to here through Simeon's prophecy in verse 34 is the sign of the cross. The cross is ahead in the Christ child's future. The road to Calvary, it began in Bethlehem. The apostle John records Jesus pointing us to this sign in his gospel, John 3, 14. Uh, it records Jesus as saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you remember that account from the Old Testament, uh, so that God's people could be saved from the plague of venomous snakes. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Later in John 12, 32 to 33, as, as Jesus' day of crucifixion drew ever so near, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up, from the earth, I will draw all peoples unto myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die, the death of the cross, a sign of the cross that communicates God's holiness to us. As God the Father had to crush God the Son on the cross because of my sin and your sin, but it also communicates God's amazing love and his great grace to us. There's no greater sign. There's no louder communication of who God is 
and his love for you and I than the cross. To connect it with the previous prophetic statement made by Simeon in verse 34 regarding a separation that is in Christ's future. It's here. It's here at this sign. It's here at the cross that that division that unifies that it occurs. Because some people see and hear God's message communicated in the cross and they're convicted of their sin and they confess their sin and they repent of it. They're born again. They're given new life and eternal life by faith in Jesus. But others only have contempt for the cross. There's those who refuse to see or hear or act on the sign of the cross, who refuse God's grace communicated through it to save us. There's those who reject the person and the work of Jesus Christ in their place, and they have only contempt for the cross. Now, that can take various forms. I'll give you two. I mean, obviously, outright atheism, where I'm going to say there is no God, or Jesus isn't God, or I'm going to reject this. But I think what's often more prevalent in contempt for the cross is a religious legalism. Just like the Jews who rejected the suffering Savior, they, and sometimes people even now, reject God's grace through faith in Jesus attempting to earn salvation by what they do or what they don't do. That's contempt for the cross just as much as atheism is. And God has Paul teach us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that this sign says the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And then in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And the question before every single human being that's ever been born is this, how will you respond to this sign, the sign of the cross? Will you fall, like Simeon talks about, or will you rise Will you confess or will you have contempt for it? Is the sign of the cross a stumbling block or foolishness to you? Or is it the power of God and the wisdom of God in your life? Will you believe? One more. At the end of verse 35, we have this at the end of Simeon's prophecy. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. And the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed a prophetic statement by Simeon about what's ahead for the Christ child, but notice he's specifically talking to Mary here in verse 35. What is the origin of this sword? We need to know because God has Luke uh, use a rare word here, uh, sword. Now you might be thinking sword is not rare. There are swords throughout the Bible, and you're right. Uh, but in the New Testament, there are only two Greek words for sword. We just translate it sword in English. The most common one is machaira. And whatever you're thinking about when I say sword, that's a machaira. But everywhere we find it in the New Testament, in every single instance, the machaira sword is always used by humans in their battles with other humans. That's not the word here in verse 35. When God has Simeon foretell the Christ child's future in verse 35 and say to Mary, yea, a sword shall pierce thy own soul also. The Greek word translated sword here is romphia. 
In the New Testament Greek lexicon says it's a long sword, probably more literally like a javelin or, or a spear. And throughout the New Testament, there's only one who wields this javelin-like sword. It's not found again in the New Testament until the book of Revelation. It's the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ in John's vision of the ascended Christ in Revelation 1.16. It's the sharp sword with uh, two edges that describes Christ in the letter to the church at Pergamum. And it is the sword that uh, comes out of the mouth of Christ at his return when he comes to establish his forever kingdom in Revelation 19. So all of this to say that, that this sword here, this Romphia sword of Luke 2.35, it is only ever presented in Scripture as being wielded by God. That's its origin. So what does that mean in verse 35? What's its objective? I want you to notice that God's message through Simeon to Mary was that this Romphia-like sword, javelin-like sword, wielded only by God in Scripture, it would pierce thine own soul, Mary. When? Where did that happen? Well, Simeon's prophetic and unusual blessing he gives as they dedicate this child to the Lord, it fast-forwards 33 years. In John 19, 25 to 27, we find Mary at the foot of the cross, her disfigured and dying son in his final moments of life, and Jesus hanging there assigns to the apostle John, take care of my mom for the next couple of days. Can you imagine her pain? She stood there. This prophecy echoing in her mind, in her ears. John 19.34, uh, John 19.30 tells us uh, that when Jesus died, um, I believe that's when this Ramphia javelin-like sword pierced her heart. But look at verse 35. It says, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. I mean, somebody else is going to be pierced by this. Once Jesus died, John 19, 34 verses later, it talks about a Roman soldier who took a spear and, and put it into Christ's side and blood and water flowed. He was already dead. And that's not the same Greek word. It's not a Romphia sword there. No, I, I think this also is talking about Jesus Christ. But when it pierced his soul was moments before. A Romphia javelin wielded by God as my sin and your sin and the sin of the entire world was poured out on Christ. And because of God's holiness, the Father had to forsake the Son. And Jesus cries out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The objective of this sword that's, that's wielded only by God and experienced by Mary and Jesus, please understand the objective is your salvation. And my salvation, Isaiah 53.10 tells us it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. When Peter preaches that great sermon at Pentecost, thousands coming to trust in Christ as Savior, Acts 2.23, he says this, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge for me, for you. This was no accident. There's no mistake. It's no plan gone wrong. Rather, this is God's objective, his plan and purpose, that God the Son would die in our place for our sins so that by faith in his grace to us, you and I can have eternal life. 
If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to do it. Do it this morning. I'll plead with you. Receive him now at Christmas. In prayer, confess your sin to him. Trust uh, in who Jesus is and what he did for you on that cross to save you from your sins. Receive him as your Lord and Savior this morning. It's that simple. Do it. Don't wait. And for you who have, in a moment we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But even now, take a moment this Christmas to remember why Jesus came. Why we celebrate the incarnation in the first place. What Christmas is truly all about. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment, just take a moment now to thank him for what he has done. That if you've been saved, you have been separated to sanctification. That you've, been, that you've responded to his grace in the sign of the cross. Thank him right now for that javelin that he endured so that you and I could be redeemed. I'm going to take a moment to pray here in just a second, but let's all bow and just remember what Christ has done for us.